This yes. is hell. Proud and poor victims of corporate cancel culture and proving there's no meritocracy in the United States since 1996. This is hell. And back when the show did start in 1996, 27 years ago this summer, there were hopes that a new left was, in fact, emerging. While President Bill Clinton was advancing anti-labor ideas like NAFTA, as well as continuing the illegal bombing of Iraq and supporting huge media corporations with the Telecommunications Act of 1996, killing independent broadcasters and ushering in an era of far-right talk radio being ubiquitous. While all that was going on, organizers and activists on the left were creating an anti-globalization and anti-war campaign. Some argue that all ended with 9-11. It did not. A year and a half after 9-11, the U.S. and the world witnessed the largest anti-war protests in human history. Still, that movement seemed to fade with the election of Barack Obama as president, as many mistakenly believed Obama to be a progressive, not what he was and is, and that is, a member of the moderate conservative wing of the Democratic Party. It didn't take long for another new left to emerge in the Occupy movement whose death was also prematurely exaggerated. Occupy would evolve and merge with the Bernie Sanders for President campaign, which in 2016 energized even those on the farthest of the left. But again, that has seemingly fizzled in the wake of four years of Donald Trump as president, and the Democratic Party still favoring conservative moderates over anyone even slightly resembling a leftist. Despite all these struggles, a new left is, again, Emerging, as our guest argues today, we'll learn all about all about the new left in a few minutes when we speak with journalist, feminist, fried food enthusiast, and author of *The Rise of a New Left: How Young Radicals Are Shaping the Future of American Politics*. Raina Lipsitz. Raina writes about gender, politics, and culture. Her work has appeared in a variety of publications, including *The Nation*. Al Jazeera America, Jewish Currents, The Atlantic, Cosmopolitan, and Glamour. Find out more about Raina at RainaLipsitz.com. That's R-A-I-N-A-L-I-P-S-I-T-Z.com. And you can follow Raina at RainLips on Twitter. Dot com. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth radio show, live streaming and podcast host Chuck Mertz. Producing is Dan Kugler. Dan, what have you been up to the past couple of weeks while I was on vacation? Well, the highlight was that yesterday I look and walk to my car and discover that someone has sprayed red spray paint on my rear view mirror on my driver's side. And uh, that's an odd thing to do. Yeah, and I ran through the list of like, do it, did I offend someone recently? Is this like a payback? I'm hope I'm guessing it's random. Random. Did <laughs> you park somewhere where you normally don't no, park your car? I'm right in front of my apartment. Wow, uh, the uh, street is pretty open parking. Yeah, I thought about that. Did I take someone's spot or right. something? Um, no, so. Uh, and yeah. your neighborhood isn't one of the, that does dibs in the summer like they do down in Bridgeport, do you? You know, I had this thought, like, do I have some neighbor who has some dib system I'm not aware of? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so um, I managed to get the 
the spray paint off the mirror, but it's still on the door and uh, two the you know there's two panels of uh, metal that's on. I'm now I'm it's kind of some red spray paint on it. So I'm now I'm forced to think like, do I pay to get this fixed? Because it looks crappy. Right, <laughs> but, it looks bad, but and it's on your quarter panels. It's going to cost a lot of money. Right, it's right. going to cost a lot of money. Yeah, and I wonder if the random vandals realize that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Wow. It's just like, so, uh, yeah, I've decided it's random uh, rather than being paranoid, but it was... Is somebody uh, trying to tell you that communism is in your rearview mirror? It was And red, that's why there's money painting well, <laughs> Right. So uh, thanks to How you, are you Dan. Doing? <laughs> okay, but thanks to you, Dan, as well as producers Kat Jarvin and Will Ippen and Richard Norwood and Norwood and contributors Seb Vupper, uh, Ronaldo Magaldi, Jeff Dorchin for keeping the show running while I was out on my annual vacation. My family has been going to the same place, running the same cabin since before I was born. the The place has changed hands three times during that period. The original owners actually built the cottages with their own hands and it took until last year for the current owners to finally replace the exposed cloth wiring they installed back in the late 40s or early 50s in other words there's a reason we can afford to take a vacation there every year we get amenities like you know renting a boat that doesn't have an anchor which is a problem when the motor you rented with the boat fails and the oars that came with the boat are not only different sizes but both are far too short. This means with no motor to propel the boat, no anchor to stop the boat from drifting, and unusable oars, you are in fact set adrift in a five by eight mile lake, which is what happened to us the first time we went out fishing. Where we go is very much a tourist town with densely packed places to rent on Michigan's largest inland lake. However, where we stay is in the last pocket of old resorts with cottages on large wooded lots. That business of, uh, you know, family resort model uh, collapsed around the turn of the century in the face of increasing inequality, the rich getting enormously wealthier, real estate bubbles, the pandemic and the nail in the coffin, new laws in the area allowing Airbnb and Verbo like short-term rentals. Our little pocket is basically abandoned and quiet with a few families of retirees that live there the entire summer and a neighboring abandoned resort, the owner of which is no longer physically capable or emotionally willing to turn their business, or actually to run their business, since their husband died a few years back. It is definitely Trump country. In fact, their pro-Trump state rep is being investigated for voting machine tampering. The area also went all War of the Worlds when back in the summer of 2020, they heard about a rumored Antifa army invasion and reacted by driving around town armed throughout the night looking for the invaders who never came. In other words, for me, it was more of the same cognitive dissonance from which I suffer every day because of the discussions and topics we share here on This Is Hell. It's that in-your-face disconnect from the way you wish the world to be and the way it really is. Dan, more important than my internal conflict of not being able to get away from it all despite being on vacation, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, I mean, what's the worst that can happen? <laughs> I mean, what's the worst that can happen? We will share your question from hell answers as posted at Patreon coming up after our talk with Reina on the new left. 
brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell, and I have this week's hangover cure. Usually, the producer reads the hangover cure, but as this week's cure is one I personally experienced while on vacation, I wanted to personally share it with you. This week's hangover, hangover cure is sleeping in, and then when you wake up, getting joyously wonderful, fantastic news. Like I said, where we vacation is very conservative. Local mobs actually torch and pitchforked it up at least one night during the summer of 2020, patrolling the area, chasing fabricated reports of a far-left horde on its way to do God knows what to local businesses. The the anti-Antifa turnout was fueled by strong public local support for the police and all emergency responders, celebrating them with several events, including parades, Throughout the year, Blue Lives Matter signs could be seen everywhere immediately following the police killing of George Floyd. Then, Roscommon County, where we visit every year, as expected and is very typical, voted down a tax increase. In doing so, they defunded the police more than many major cities whose mayors promised they would defund the police, but would quickly go back on those promises after conservative pressure. But last week, I woke up to this wonderful local Michigan story. Flint's ABC affiliate, WJRT-TV, reported on yet another local instance of a solidly red county defunding the police, Gladwin County, which is the next county north from where we stay. This is from Wednesday, August 9th, with WJRT's Terry Camp reporting on the close defeat of a public safety millage in Gladwin County, where the people will soon notice changes in policing. The county is facing a budget deficit, and one of the few places they can cut is in the sheriff's office. Changes are already taking place, which include informing townships there will be no marine patrol, no response on noise ordinances. Keep in mind, this is in a county that recently authorized short-term Verbo and Airbnb-like rentals, which are notorious in the area for becoming party houses and leading to noise ordinance violations. And there may be sometimes when someone will call the police for help, but there will be no one available, according to the department. As far as residents calling for a sheriff's deputy to respond for a complaint, that might be difficult at times. Gladwin County Sheriff Mike Shea is quoted saying, let's put it quite frankly, that there will be gaps in the schedule and you will not get a police officer to respond to your location. Gladwin and Beaverton Police Departments will be told help from the Sheriff's Department will be reduced as well. The Michigan State Police helps cover the county and will continue to do so, but they say they are short-staffed as well. Shea, the commissioner, Gladwin County, is also quoted saying, the community has spoken, and you know, effectively, it's a defund the police locally. That's the way I'm taking it. That makes this week's hangover cure. Sleeping in and waking up to great news that the far right is struggling to reconcile their anti-tax absolutism with their anti or their pro-police absolutism. And it appears reactionaries hate taxes more than they love cops. Blue lives don't matter to the right. Only tax time does. Coming up, the new left. 
Dan will have some of your answers to our most recent question from hell. We will tell you what we've been up to during our bonus Patreon podcast over the last few weeks, which are all available at patreon.com slash thisishell. We'll have This Week in Rotten History, and we'll tell you what's happening later this week. Also, the local paper covering the area where I was on vacation had the single best letter to the editor that I have read in years. It's a report on a horrible party that takes place at the lake every year with a horrible name, Bud Bash, sponsored by Budweiser. A party that happened the first weekend I was there, and by all reports, it's not the rager it once was when it was necessary to bring in hundreds of cops from all over the region to control what was an unruly mob mixing substance abuse with a pontoon boat flotilla back in the 1980s and 90s. And this report in the paper was perfect. The revolution will not be televised, but it will be broadcast, streamed live, and podcast right here on This Is Hell. And look, we might not be on the verge of revolution just yet, but there are at least signs that interest in transformative change is growing. Maybe not as much as we hope, but it's gaining steam. Of course, there are many obstacles to implementing policies that actually support the working class, including what today's guest describes as the still-dominant conservative-moderate wing of the Democratic Party. Here to describes, describe today's new left journalist, feminist, and my favorite part of her bio, fried food enthusiast and author of The Rise of a New Left, How Young Radicals Are Shaping the Future of American Politics, Raina Lipsitz is our guest. Welcome to This Is Hell, Raina. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you so much for being on the show. This is a fascinating book because, as I was saying in the intro, there have been many occasions in the past when people were saying there is the emergence of a new left, but those always seem to, for whatever reason, fall short. How new is the new left? When did it start, and what was the catalyst for its beginning? Sure. So the new left, as described in my book, uh, really is a reference to basically the last decade in American politics. And I kind of start the book with Occupy in a lot of ways. So, you know, everything that grew out of Occupy, including the two Bernie Sanders for president campaigns of 2016 and 2020, um, up to and including the kind of modern iteration of the Democratic Socialists of America, which was founded in 1982, but grew uh, substantially in the last few years, or really since post-2016. Um, so that's what the book is about. Um, I do think that we're in a new moment, even from when I started writing the book, which was really three and a half years ago now. Uh, and a friend of mine recently suggested that I should uh, if when and if Verso brings out a paperback edition that I should consider retitling it The Plateau of a New Left, which, you know, made me kind of sad, honestly, but is not um not a totally inaccurate description of where we are now. So uh, you were mentioning Occupy uh, and that's where your book kind of starts. Shortly after Occupy Wall Street was broken up and many of the other Occupy, uh, the occupations were broken up around the United States. There was criticism and analysis that was flourishing that said that Occupy had proven to be a failure because the occupation 
had ended. How do you feel that that kind of analysis was faulty? Where did that uh, kind of analysis fall short, in your opinion? Well, I think, I guess I would agree that Occupy had some serious structural deficits that, that made it kind of unsustainable as a as a literal occupation. I do think that, as I sort of argue in my book, it was still a really important movement, and it's had um, an effect on American politics that persists to this day. I think it gave us a language to talk about class and, and a, an analysis that really resonated with a lot of people who don't think about these things otherwise or hadn't been super politically engaged and suddenly realized, you know, wow, that makes a lot of sense. I am part of the 99% that is functionally disenfranchised while the country is largely controlled by the interests of the 1%. Um, I I just read a fascinating book that I'm reviewing for Current Affairs by a journalist named Vincent Bevins. It's called If We Burn. And the Bevins book is about, it's a, it's a great sort of companion to my book because my book is very focused on the United States and on what happened in the US in the last 10 years. Vincent Bevins' book is a look at these other movements around the globe that were in some ways, you know, similar to Occupy, or I guess I should say Occupy was similar to them, the Arab Spring, a lot of what was going on in Ukraine and in Hong Kong and in South Korea. And he goes through all of these movements and says kind of, how did we get from this moment where it looked like we were poised for major a major global shift to conditions deteriorating in a lot of those places just 10 years later? And I'd say a lot of his thesis is similar to some of what I say in my book about Occupy, which is that it, you know, it really does matter how these protests are structured. And I think you can have these moments where you get millions and millions of people in the street and without a kind of larger plan and coherent uh, set of actions and organizations, it's not going to necessarily add up to anything. And I think that is a, a very important lesson for the left of the last 10 years. And that doesn't mean that those protests, those moments of, of real change, it doesn't mean that they didn't mean anything, but it means we have to get smarter about laying the groundwork to uh, build on those gains and not have it be just a moment where people are in the streets, but learn how to build out the infrastructure that keeps those, those moments sustainable. Do you see that infrastructure being built out from the protests of 2020? You know, in some ways, yes, and in some ways, no. I, I'm curious to see what happens with Dream Defenders. That's a group that is Florida-based that I interviewed two of the leaders of in my book, um, Rachel Gilmer and Naila Summers. I know Dream Defenders is in the process of going national. I think that's an exciting, potentially really exciting development. It's a Black-led, youth-led movement, um, explicitly socialist movement. I don't know where or how that's that's sort of going to develop. I do think that there are, you know, obviously Democratic Socialists of America has made major gains in certain places, including Chicago, um, L.A., New York, Minnesota, a bunch of American cities that uh, not coincidentally have strong labor movements, strong union representation, union density. Um, that's where I think the major gains have been made, and I don't think that those should be discounted, but I would like to see, obviously, even more of that. And I do think 
the major takeaway from my book I, is just that, you know, the left has gotten serious in the last 10 years in a way that, um, you know, I, I, I was in high school in the 90s. It did not feel like there was an American left. It just sort of felt like there were maybe five environmentalists and a couple of feminists that I knew. And that was kind of it. And then I did some Nader, Ralph Nader organizing in college, the very beginning of my freshman year. And that kind of didn't go anywhere either, right? I mean, Nader got less than 3% of the vote nationwide. So I'm really excited and hopeful about the gains that we have made. I don't think that they're enough. And I think in some, in some areas, we're kind of stalling out. Um, that's not, I don't, blame the left for that. And I certainly don't blame individual leaders on the left for that. I think that the deck, as always, is stacked against us, but that's all the more reason to figure out how to how to get around those obstacles. When we spoke with Donna Murch last year in 2022 about her book, Asada Taught Me, State Violence, Racial Capitalism, and the Movement for Black Lives, she mentioned how important it was to recognize that the Dream Defenders had organized long before Black Lives Matter, that there had been organizing going on for a long time, and BLM was far from unprecedented or an anomaly of a moment in time as the press had been reporting it was. You write Dream Defenders, Relative Youth, Radical Politics, Open Partisanship, and Obama-era roots place them in the vanguard of the new left. And again, this is predating the pandemic, and a lot of people are saying that all these protests are happening simply because of the pandemic. This is all predates the pandemic. You uh, add uh, the obstacles they have encountered to building a more just world, reveal as much about the political moment as their open embrace of abolition and socialism. Is that what makes the new left new, its goals of abolition and socialism? No, I mean, I think that's what makes the new left old, I guess. I mean, there's, I, there's also a section in my book where I talk about the history of socialism in the United States, which I think has been in many ways lost, unless you're somebody who studies this stuff or writes about it or thinks about it all the time. Most people don't um, know that part of our history because it's been very deliberately obscured. Uh, but there was a time in, you know, in American politics when there was socialist representation in in virtually in, in all 50 states, really, and in many places where you wouldn't expect, including legislators who were elected in places like Alabama. Now, that was also a kind of um, limited thing, especially at the electoral level. I think given our two-party structure, which has been really, really resistant to change for a lot of reasons, um, it's it's really tough to make inroad, meaningful inroads at the electoral level. I do think we've done that, but I don't think, I think without some really serious structural changes, I don't see how we can kind of keep going with that. I mean, there's just um, the way that ballot access is controlled in particular states is a huge obstacle. That's something that there are some shifts towards changing that in places like New York and in other states. Uh, but there are a lot of really entrenched interests that want to keep that the same because obviously it's easier to control um, the flow of power in a state if you control access to the ballot and make it difficult for candidates to run uh, in the first place. And New York State 
is is actually particularly bad in that way. It's really, really hard to get on the ballot. Um, under former Governor Andrew Cuomo, there were lots of uh, ways in which he he successfully maneuvered to keep third parties from gaining any kind of a foothold that he had a kind of personal vendetta against Working Families Party, and he outmaneuvered them in a few ways, and they've still managed to survive in New York, which is is great and important, but there are a lot of reasons that people, um, a, lot, a lot of reasons that that's difficult to do. But I do think that the socialism part, the abolition part, those ideas are, are old, even in the United States, they're old. The question is just how can we take them from the fringes to the mainstream? And we've made more progress in that way in the last 10 years than we had for 50 years previously. That's sort of the central thesis of my book. But I think one of the biggest challenges now is that Bernie Sanders is no longer a national, he's not going to run again. Um, it, it breaks my heart to say it, but I don't think he's ever going to be our president at this point. Um, and so in the absence of a sort of recognizable national super popular figure like Bernie, how do you mobilize people? The campaigns were very, very useful in that way. People like having a kind of individual figurehead. He's a super popular person. He still is. Um, and a campaign, a presidential campaign attracts media attention in a way that issue-based campaigns uh, just don't. So I think that's a huge challenge for the left going forward. Do you think that kind of cult of personality, do you think that's bad? for the left? Do you think that's bad for the new left? Does that constrain or limit what the new left can achieve? You know, I think it does and it doesn't. I think I, I think cults of personality are, are generally bad in politics. It would obviously it would be better for all of us if um sort of people were more drawn to issues. And in some way people are more drawn to issues, right? Like even in states like Florida, uh minimum wage hikes voting rights for people with felony convictions on their record, those issues were more popular, um, much more popular with, with Florida voters, those causes and issues than Joe Biden ever was as a candidate. So sometimes that can work to our benefit when you take the personalities out of it and you keep the focus on issues that will, and policies that will help working families. I think on the other hand, unless we make major changes to our political system, which doesn't just doesn't seem like it's going to happen anytime soon, uh, you need you kind of need people. You need charismatic figures. You need people who can galvanize lots of support, people who get people really get voters really excited, get volunteers really excited, people like Bernie, people like Brandon Johnson in Chicago, right? so I, I, I think ca candidate quality, is also key to electoral success for the left, whether it should be or not. I mean, I think we'd be better off with a political system that didn't um, did, didn't tie politics so closely to individuals in the first place. But we don't have that system. We're not we're not in a system where you vote for the party. Really, we're very much in an American individualist mindset. Um, system where it's all about your feelings about the candidate. Do you like this person? Do you want to have coffee with this person? All of that sort of 
stuff that's easy to mock in, in political writing and political um, reporting, but is still, whether it should be or not, is just still really important and makes a difference to how far you can go in a campaign, I think. We are speaking with Raina Lipsitz. She is the uh, the author of The Rise of a New Left, How Young Radicals Are Shaping the Future of American Politics. You write, nothing demonstrated the arrival of a newly emboldened left and the challenges it faces more clearly than the eruption of anti-racist protests that spring and summer of 2020. So one of those challenges turned out to be promises about uh, police reform made by candidates running for office in 2020 that then went unfulfilled or worse. After being elected, some, like Chicago's Mayor Lori Lightfoot, not only dropped her opposition to a huge new police training center, she actually expanded that plan. Were the protests a success in raising awareness of institutional racism and police abuse, especially against people of color, but failed in changing policies? I think that, um, yes, I think that's one... (laughs) I think there's a lot of validity to that analysis and and that critique, but I also think that, so you had mentioned earlier the pandemic and a lot of people would say that the BLM uprisings in in summer 2020 were a result of anger about COVID and anger at the government for sort of failing people more generally, not just with police abuse, but failing to keep us safe from, from anything, from illness from a, you know, failing to failing on the level of public health to protect us. And I think that that's true. I think that you can't, it just wouldn't have exploded that way if there weren't multiple things that people were angry about, multiple constituencies who had different um, overlapping, but different interests and, and things that drew them into the streets. On the other hand, I think that the pandemic very clearly was a, a had a dampening effect on on left wing organizing. You mentioned earlier that a lot of this stuff was happening before the pandemic. A lot of the groundwork was being laid, obviously starting with Occupy and then the Bernie Bernie organizing started really in 20, 2014, 2015. Um and so the pandemic really slowed us down and and was a huge problem for the left as well as being a catalyst. I I guess I would say that it's not that the protests failed to achieve uh, meaningful reform on, in terms of defunding police, in terms of federal legislation to reform the police. That stuff didn't get done, not because the protests were badly executed or whatever. It, it didn't get done because the people who run the country didn't want it to get done. And there was a a kind of mini backlash that we're still in the middle of. I mean, I live in New York. I watched what happened in our mayoral race and why and how Eric Adams, who is a is a cop, was a former cop and is very, very pro-police, how he got into office. And there are a lot of reasons that people, there are a lot of people with a strong interest in fueling this narrative about crime and crime panic, which is also a cyclical thing in American politics. I think we see that. We saw that in the 90s, uh, Bill Clinton campaigning on on putting hundreds of thousands of more police on the streets. Um, that's a very common trope in American politics. It, not to say that it's not sometimes real. Sometimes there are real spikes in crime, and sometimes people 
really are fearful and people of course deserve to feel safe both on the streets from their fellow citizens and from police officers. I think we can do both things. I think that you can build a society where people feel safe in their neighborhoods on a daily basis and feel safe within interactions with law enforcement, but there has to be um, political will to do that. And instead we have this, this kind of infantile uh, political cycle where people say what they want, it gets shut down by people who don't wanna give it to us for for a variety of reasons, for many reasons. And then in, it somehow turns into blame for the movement. It's sort of similar to the um, the narrative of Susan Faludi's book, Backlash, which I think came out in 1991. She talks a lot about um, feminists, the gains of feminism, and then the backlash to those gains. And I never thought it was the fault of the women's movement, for example, that uh, women are unhappier now, have more burdens on them now in a lot of ways. I mean, that's the fault of society for not, not you know, keeping pace with the demands made by the women's movement. And I think you can say a similar thing about BLM and about the uprisings of 2020. You also point out, no, excuse me for one second. You also point out Florida has been ground zero for some of the most important movement moments of the generation of the Dream Defenders, such as Dream Defenders take over the state capitol and surviving students' efforts to lobby for gun control in the wake of the 2018 massacre at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. To Rachel Gilmer, one of the Dream Defenders' uh, executive officers, it was both moving and significant that so many young Floridians refused to accept the slaughter of teenagers as inevitable and were determined to force a national conversation about guns. They understood that many Florida politicians, Democrats and Republicans alike, are in bed with some of the world's most corrupt corporations, a fact that has had, quote, a direct impact on people's ability to get their basic needs met. So how is the new left's relationship or feelings about the Democratic Party any different from whatever old left there was in the past? How is it any different? Do the, does the new left view the Democratic Party any differently than the old left did? Um, you know, that's a good question. I think that there's there's the old... <laughs> it, get, it gets sort of confusing just the the language around this because there's the old old left and the old new left right and those were <laughs> those were two distinct um uh trends and movements in in american politics i think that the old old left sort of the labor coalition union trade union people but other and and other a variety of of people were in that coalition um I would say that they saw the Democratic Party as an important vehicle to getting some of those. Well, some of them saw it as an important vehicle, and some of them said, we really need a third party in American politics. We need an entirely new party that protects the interests of labor and the interests of working people. And then the old, old new left, I think, was more anti-hierarchical, more of a um, kind of anarchic social movement uh, that was more interested in civil rights and feminism and and didn't necessarily see government structures as the best. I mean, did in some ways. And then in the 1960s, obviously, the civil rights movement, American civil rights movement in the 1960s, saw government as an important vehicle for those changes and put, putting pressure on the Demo Democratic Party as key to achieving some of the legislative demands. Um, so different people on different 
parts of the American left have had different strategies around this. I'd say the new, new left that I write about in my book very much sees running on the Democratic line as key to making real gains at the electoral level. I mean, that's certainly been the strategy of the Democratic Socialists of America, of which I am a member. Um, there, Although there are people even within DSA who don't see that as the right path. I think that's the only way we've made serious gains at the level of representation and government in the last 10 years. I think that's the only reason that you see Minnesota, LA, New York, Chicago, um, with serious representation in state legislatures and city councils, whether that adds up to enough um, is, is a question I think we're still very much debating on the left. I mean, I I don't see how you get, I mean, we've because we've seen, we have a control, right? We've seen these other efforts in the last 10, 20, 30 years to get people elected on the Green Party line. That hasn't gone so well. I tell the story in my book of Jabari Brisport, who's a state senator now in New York. And um, Jabari Brisport, when he first ran for office, I think it was 2017, he ran on the Green Line. And he did really well on the Green Party line. He did incredibly well for a third party candidate, but he still only ended up with around 33, 33 or 35% of the vote. In the next cycle, he ran on the Democratic line and he won with something like 80% of the vote. I'm sure I've got those figures slightly off, but it was a very, very pronounced difference. And he did much better running as a Democrat. So, and I think you have, we have a lot of examples of that. We have the, you know, Ralph Nader and Bernie Sanders are different people. They have different histories, they have different politics, but I do still think that they can be compared in terms of the outcomes of their um, national campaigns. And in a way you could say that Ralph Nader should have done even better because Ralph Nader was never running as a socialist. And yet Bernie did way, way, way better <laughs> got way, 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 way more votes. And I think that's because he was running as a Democrat. So um, it's something I'm I'm actually kind of agnostic. I mean, I'm willing to hear lots of different arguments about this. Overall, I'd say we have to use the party because this is what we have. And I say that as someone who is not, not a tremendous fan of the contemporary iteration of the Democratic Party. And you write that the Democratic Party uh, is both corrupt and hollow, mealy-mouthed, beholden to corporate donors, incapable of delivering or unwilling to deliver even things as popular with voters and potentially beneficial to the party as voting rights legislation. It is less a political organization than a fundraising apparatus and jobs program for consultants. Young organizers are understandably demoralized if a Trump presidency, mass uprisings, and year -long, years-long pandemic do not add up to some kind of inflection point. What will? So is this all an outcome of the ways in which political campaigns are currently Funded and financed, the power of corporate and special interest money, as well as the uneven influence of wealthy individual owners, especially in this era of increasing inequality, is the reason, is the cause of the Democratic Party and the Republican Party becoming less a political organization than a fundraising apparatus and jobs program for consultants is the reason that all of that happens simply because of the way the campaigns are funded. And if they were funded differently, this problem would disappear. 
Um, I don't think that's the only problem. I do think it would be it would change things hugely and in a good way if um, if we funded our politics differently and if there were more uh, democracy <laughs> at the level of of getting people on the ballot, making it easier to have lots of different voices and alternatives. Um, there are lots of different ways of doing that. Some of them have gained some traction, mostly at the local or state level. You know, New York now has ranked choice voting in some races, and in the last mayoral race, it was ranked choice voting. Uh, I don't think that stuff on its own is going to fix all of these problems. I think that living in under this kind of supercharged form of American capitalism even if we reformed all of the electoral stuff, rich people, plutocrats would find a way to have their interests represented. I mean, that's just what happens. So a lot of different things have to be changed at once. That said, I, I and I understand there are people on the left who get very frustrated about this and say electoral electoralism is always a dead end. I understand that perspective. Um, and there's some history that you can point to that in some ways backs that up. But I was just sort of, I was speaking with a friend over the weekend and I said, you know, I just don't think that the right would put this much money and effort and time into making it harder to vote um, and making democracy harder, lessening democracy and sort of diluting our democracy if that didn't matter at all, right? I mean, why would, there's a reason that the GOP now is, focused on making it more difficult to do statewide referendums. And that's because they're losing on statewide referendums. They're losing on, especially on abortion. And if if voting didn't matter at all, if doing having sort of ballot initiatives that are easier to get on the ballot and easier to get to pass by a simple majority, if getting rid of the filibuster, if that stuff had no impact on our politics, then there'd be no reason to oppose it. And the right is is very much opposed to that stuff. So, to me, that signals that that's an important avenue to pursue. To excuse me, to pursue. I don't think it's the only area um, on which we need to, in which we need to to compete and to fight. So, is the new left, in your opinion, more interested in creating a movement outside the party, maybe alongside of it, than working within the Democratic Party? Is the new left sensitive when it comes to its potential? for co-optation by the party? Um, it depends on who you ask. I do, I think that we're getting serious about pursuing inside-outside strategy. There are definitely lots of people who want to do, uh, want to be on the inside, and there are more people who are interested in, in being, say, staffers for people in Congress that they actually admire and who they think are actually doing good things, which is, which is a big difference, you know, I mean, like, I, there were none of, there were very, very few of those people when I was growing up. It wasn't like, you couldn't even really aspire to work for somebody like Ilhan Omar or Cori Bush, because they, they weren't in Congress. There were like three of them, maybe, and now there's eight of them. So we have, you know, it's definitely not anywhere near enough, but we're, we're shifting in the right direction on that. And then at the same time, there are lots of people who, are getting serious about building external movements outside because it doesn't work if you only pursue one track. I think that's another lesson of the last 10 years that you can't just have 
people on the inside who we trust to do the right things. Um, there's just too many institutional incentives for them not to do those things or eventually to moderate, not even moderate their positions, but just sort of become more individualist in their outlook and decide, look, I know what I'm doing. I'm going to make this or this decision. I remember there was this very striking moment that I write about in my book um, when AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was running in the Democratic primary in New York. And so this was before she was in office and she gave an answer in a debate. Somebody said, you know, something to the effect of, will you vow to support Joe Crowley if he wins and you lose? And she said, I can't answer that question. I'd have to take it back to the movement and see what the people who, who supported me, who put me here in this position to run for office, what they would want me to do. And the New York Times kind of mocked her for it I, at the time. I remember this. They ran an op-ed saying that, characterizing it as sort of dodging the question. I don't think she was dodging the question. I think that's the kind of person we want in office, or at least, you know, 2017 AOC is the kind of person we want in office. Now there's a whole counter narrative about how she's not as good as she once was. I'm, I'm again, sort of agnostic on that point. I I think she's done a lot of good and still has the capacity to do a lot of good, but I understand why people are, some people on the left are disappointed in her. Um, but that's sort of the general attitude that we want is somebody who is there responding to movements, responding to people outside of Congress, not somebody who just sort of has decided now that they're in power, they're gonna make all the decisions. You mentioned Sadiqa Reynolds, the first woman to serve as president and CEO of the Louisville Urban League in the affiliate's nearly century-long history. You quote her saying Democrats are putting forward average candidates to do average work to move the needle just a little bit. And I think young people are tired of that. We're really creating in this country this need for extremes in order to actually get something done. The politics of compromise has not worked fast enough. Do you think that's the case from both ends of the political spectrum? The politics of compromise have led to nothing of real consequence to get done, uh, speaking, you know, sparking a more ex uh, extremist uh, positions, because the press advocates for bipartisanism and commends politicians who can work across party lines. Did working together tear us apart? I, I think that's particularly true on the left, that the left has not made gains and will not make serious gains by pursuing some kind of bipartisan consensus. So there is no more there is no more bipartisan consensus, really. I mean there there's almost nothing on which there is a bipartisan consensus now. So that's part of the problem. I think the other problem is that it's always characterized, especially in the mainstream political press, as a kind of fight between two evenly matched sides or two sides that have exactly the same constituencies. And that's just not the case. I mean, there is there is no far left in the United States. There's no, I mean, there are a few far leftists or individual people with, I guess, extreme left um, views, ideologies. None of them have any power. Uh, the What is persistently characterized as far left is mainstream, broadly popular consensus positions like Medicare for all, you know, these things that in in many parts of, say, Western Europe are completely taken for granted. So I think part of it is the framing is is just often completely mis misleading and, and deliberately so, especially in 
places like the, the Washington Post and Politico. I also think, though, that I just don't see what the avenue, uh, given the, the modern character or the character of the modern Republican Party, that's not um, a viable path. You can't just sort of work together with people who are openly white supremacist, openly trying to murder women via abortion policy. I mean, I just can't, um, I don't see that as a workable plan and it doesn't seem like it would get the left anything. It's been a very fruitful path for the right to pursue in a lot of ways because the right can say things like, well, you know, the right can get democratic votes on things like funding the police or funding the military or getting more money for grossly bloated, overfunded institutions like the military and the police, um, and Democrats will vote for that. Uh, so the right has a lot more to gain from that kind of, um, that sort of framing and, and, and path. And I think the left needs to get serious about pursuing more confrontational politics. I think that's been our strongest moment. I write in the book about AOC, again, early AOC uh, joining a sit-in at Nancy Pelosi's office. And I was really hopeful at that time that we'd see a lot more of that from her. Cori Bush led an, a really important, uh, I think it was 2021 action where she was sleeping out on the steps of Congress, try, uh, trying to get the Biden administration to extend a COVID era um, tenant, tenant protections, keeping people in their homes, preventing mass evictions, mass homelessness. And she was successful. I think that protest was successful, at least at temporarily halting the, or, or extending the, the moratorium, the eviction moratorium. And then it went away when COVID went away. So there were some gains made during COVID that have since been rolled back for a lot of reasons, but we don't get the goods unless and unless and until we're willing to really confront power. I mean, that was also a very strong moment for um, the two Justins of state legislators who joined the protest on the, uh, you know, jo joined a protest that their constituents were leading. And that's that's the kind of leadership I think we need to see more of today. You write that conservative Democrats clearly share Republicans' fear that the AOC wing of the Democratic Party will continue to gain in power and prominence. Shortly before he was elected mayor of New York City at a July 2021 fundraiser co-hosted by a Republican city council member, Democrat Eric Adams declared that he was running, quote, against a movement, adding, all across the country, the DSA socialists are mobilizing to stop Eric Adams. NYC DSA did not endorse a candidate in New York's 2021 mayoral race, but its members opposed Adams. Is the Democratic Party a greater obstacle to the left than the Republican Party is, or the right's media outlets like Fox News and Newsmax? Is it the Democratic Party and its, you know, uh, very, let's say, most ardent supporters, are they a greater obstacle than the Republican Party is and the far right? I don't think so, because uh, the Republican Party and the far right doesn't need the left for anything. <laughs> I mean, the Republican Party and the far right would like to exterminate the left. Um, I think the difference with the Democratic Party relationship to the left is that the Democratic Party needs the left to, say, turn out votes, to get young people to go to the polls, to get 
people of color to working class and people of color and all kinds of constituencies that the party the party has largely um abandoned at the at the kind of top levels of the party and the official platform of the party has has moved away from protecting those interests so the democratic party needs the left for voter turnout and also for cover on certain issues and to be able to say occasionally as biden has has done you know biden can say look i i like bernie i work with bernie bernie's on the budget committee or now he's on the um labor and pensions committee and and that that help that's helpful to them they can say that they're progressive they can get young people excited they can get voters to the polls uh but yeah the the right has no use for the left at all you write that in 2020 trump ran against the precise kind of uh socialism brutal authoritarian repressive that every major democratic presidential candidate including bernie sanders repeatedly disavowed he railed against the unhinged left-wing mob, Trump that is, trying to vandalize our history, desecrate our monuments, and punish, cancel, and persecute anyone who does not conform to their demands. City and state governments have removed some monuments to Confederate generals in recent years, but an all-powerful left capable of smiting its enemies has never existed in the United States. If it did, we'd have a national, hair, uh, national health service or at least Medicare for all. Can there be a left that disavows socialism? What happens to any notion of the left when it is expected to disavow socialism? Well, I mean, I think a lot of people, uh, certainly a lot of elected officials in American politics would say there can be a left that disavows socialism and there has to be a left that, that disavows socialism because it's electorally toxic. I don't agree with that analysis. I I think if you're shoving, if you're disavowing socialism and shoving socialists out of your um, coalition, you do so at your peril because socialism, depending on how you frame it, depending on how you ask the question, but many of the things that socialists have fought for and won including the eight hour workday, for example, and also just sort of basic basic protections for um, elderly people and children, uh, those things are enormously popular. And we've seen that it's a third rail, even in Republican politics, they can't, Trump is successful partly because he never, never ran against social security and told them not to touch social security. Um, so those things are really popular and important. And I think it's pretty, it I, I think it would it makes the left weaker when they uh when they root out the socialists or even even speak badly about socialists in public. Um I do think that it's interesting you brought up that Trump quote. The right the right does need the left as a foil in terms of like I was saying earlier, the right doesn't need the left for anything, but they do need a, a bogeyman. They need like a they need someone to run against and to to of like a very scary villain figure. But the the right is very smart about this because the right doesn't wait for actual Stalinists or or terrifying, you know, communists to run against. The right just says, "Oh, Joe Biden is a is a scary Stalinist communist," and they just collapse all the distinctions and make everyone their enemy. Um, you know, the Democratic Party wants to have a more nuanced position and that's partly why they lose all the time or they lose things that they shouldn't be losing um lose fights that they should not be 
losing. Uh, and I, that's one of my, my great frustrations with the party. So no, I mean, I personally think the left is much stronger when it's more explicitly socialist and socialist identified and much weaker when it isn't. We've seen the decline of labor and that is not, um, that is very, very much related to purging labor unions of socialists uh, in throughout the 20th century. So I think that's the wrong move. I think that people like Ro Khanna and certain progressives in Congress feel like that's the only way that they can win. Um, and that's a that's a question that you that we're that we are sort of debating as a movement is like how how toxic is socialism really? I think that depends on a lot of things. And I think that the underlying concepts and the things that socialists fight for are, have been, and remain enormously popular. So why is the Democratic Party seemingly so opposed to the left? Do they see the left as a threat to their bottom line and their threat to being a defense against the far right taking power, that they think that the far left cannot do what they can when it comes to countering far right uh, taking of power? Or is it something other than just their bottom line and their ability to, you know, from their view, counter reactionaries taking power? I think you could say that some some individual party activists and and voters sincerely believe that that they're in a better position than the quote unquote far left to counter Trump and they would they have uh, examples of races and especially presidential races that they can point to in support of that. I don't think I think the people who actually run the party the um, top leaders in the party are not, I don't think that's a good faith. I, I don't think that they truly believe that what they're doing and saying is the better, more effective way to run against Trump. I think that they just want to, they've re, reoriented the party away from the working class, away from quote unquote special interest groups like feminists, like civil rights activists, like anybody who wants uh, a more egalitarian society and towards very, very wealthy donors and college-educated people who live in suburbs. That's just a decision they've made at the top levels of the party about who their base is, who they're going to be accountable to. And that's for a lot of reasons, but a lot of reasons related to money and consulting jobs and how you get the money to fund elections now that we're in an arms race, um, especially on presidential contests where it's he who raises the most, you know, millions and millions of dollars is, is in the strongest position to win. So I think they're sort of different. Those are different uh, constituencies. I, I don't think that either argument is right. I think the people at the top of the party are pretty corrupt and should be gotten rid of. And I think that individual people who are completely panicked about the idea of another Trump presidency, I have a lot of sympathy for that. But I think that they're that it would be wrong. It's a, it's just a misguided path to say, well, because of Trump, we have to um, kick out all the socialists or get rid of any ideas that resonate with, with masses of people. You write that the power struggles playing out in each of the two major political parties will continue in the near future. The rising left wing of the Democratic Party will keep primarying and challenging its still dominant conservative moderate wing. And the GOP will, at least until Trump's death, be controlled by Trump loyalists. Does the conservative moderate wing of the Democratic Party 
in any way benefit Trump and from Trump's exist- existence. While the far left may oppose many of Biden's policies, is it absolutely necessary for the far left to support Biden because of Trump, further empowering the conservative moderate wing of the Democratic Party and undermining attempts by leftist groups to get pro-worker candidates elected? Does Trump cause moderate conservative moderate conservatism to flourish within the Democratic Party? And is that good for Trump? Well, uh, so the first part of the question, I just, I guess I would say that the party, the Democratic Party benefits from far right, from people like Trump, because it's, they can raise money off of that. And I, I'm still angry about a text I got from the Democratic Party. I signed up for their alerts just to sort of keep track of their um, fundraising appeals and how they're framing things and what their pitch to voters is. And I think it was the day after the Dobbs uh, decision leaked and I got a message saying, you know, rush more money to the Democratic Party to protect abortion rights. And I thought, well, I'm not going to do that. You just you just lost abortion rights, possibly for the next 50 years. I mean, you did nothing to protect me when you had power, which was, you know, many times in the last in the last 30 years. So I that made me really angry. That continues to make me angry. That's what benefits the Democratic Party about figures like Trump. The other part of the question, I think, was does Trump um, and correct me if I'm if I'm misstating what you're asking, but does Trump kind of give rise to a more moderate conservative wing in the Democratic Party because people so hate the idea of Trump winning? Well, I mean, I it's my personal belief that if the party had actually institutionally, officially as a party at the top levels gotten behind Bernie. Um, I, I'm not one of those people who says, oh, Bernie would 100% have won. I don't think there's any way to prove that. I'm not sure. I'm not sure how it would have gone. Do I think he would have been in a stronger position than Hillary Clinton to beat Donald Trump? Yes, I do. Um, I think he would have been in a much stronger position, especially in states like Michigan, Wisconsin, uh, places where she she that she lost. So I I think that there are people who think, oh, we have to get really serious and getting serious to them means not embracing any kind of real politics, not being ideologically committed to any serious change. And that's the way we'll beat Trump. I don't see a whole lot of evidence of that. Now, Biden did win. I think that Biden won. I think it's very hard to separate out that win from COVID and the panic that that caused and the instability that that led to. I mean, that just was a huge crisis and people felt like, I don't know, I guess I think some of it was a sort of psychology of we need a um, a boring granddad to lead us out of this very scary moment. Um, I mean, I preferred the boring granddad Bernie Sanders to the boring granddad Joe Biden. Uh, I think different people have different perspectives on that, but it's my, it's, I do not think that moving away from politics that has mass appeal and moving away from a real commitment to delivering for working people is going to get, I think that's going to lead to losses and has led to losses for the Democratic Party, not gains. And even in the short term, 
even if you could persuade me that, okay, we needed to do that to beat Trump, which again is a an analysis I reject, uh, what's the long-term plan? It just seems like it's going to yield more, more Trumps and embolden the right, further embolden the right. And then it's just gonna be an endless cycle of trying to beat back the worst, worst people in America instead of defeating them in the long term. We have been speaking with journalist, feminist, and author of The Rise of a New Left, How Young Radicals Are Shaping the Future of American Politics, Raina Lipsitz. She, you can find out more about Raina at her website, RainaLipsitz.com, and follow Raina on Twitter.com at RainLips. One last question for you, as we do with all of our guests. Our final question is what we call the question from hell, the question we may hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience may hate your response. You quote the Democratic Socialists of America's Maria Svart saying, it's more obvious to more people that we cannot return to normal. It's neither possible nor desirable. So my question from hell for you is, how much have we returned to normal? And what does that mean for the new left? Well, I think unfortunately a lot of people feel like we are back to normal, that COVID as a as an acute crisis has passed um, and now everything's fine and we can just sort of go back to brunch. And I, that was a, a, a problem also in the Obama era, right? That there was this moment of tremendous hope and um, that he represented some kind of big major change in American politics. I mean, that's what he ran on, right? It was hope and change. And then he didn't deliver on that, um, on, on, on a lot of that hope. And he disappointed a lot of, especially a lot of younger people who invested a lot in that campaign. Uh, so I think we have sort of, I guess, gotten back to normal, whatever that means. The problem is that the people we hear from the most on political talk shows and political media in the New York Times and the Washington Post are people who were never in real trouble to begin with, right? They're people who kind of were unsettled by Trump on mainly on aesthetic grounds, uh, to, to be perfectly blunt, who just didn't like that he was this sort of gross, trashy guy who was then representing America on the national stage. It was embarrassing for them, uh, but it wasn't materially affecting your life, if you were, say, David Brooks or or really any columnist at a major newspaper. Um, so, yes, we've gone, gotten back to normal in some ways, I guess, uh, sort of externally. I think it would be a mistake to go back to sleep politically. I think we, I mean, it's a corny way to put it, but we really do have to stay woke now more than ever because these threats, the right is just getting stronger and stronger. And um, it's not going to go away. Like I said, I think even if you get rid of Trump, the individual, you're not getting rid of Trumpism if you just sort of decide that the status quo is fine, because there are a lot of people who are struggling and suffering in this country in a real way, and they deserve um, real change. And oh, and I just wanted to say really quickly, I think it's Raina Lipsitz, R-A-I-N-A-L-I-P-S. That's my Twitter handle. I'm sorry. Raina Lips. Is. It, um, it, yeah, I, I that, for some reason I copy and pasted it and missed an A in there. So follow <laughs> Raina on Raina Lips on Twitter.com. Find out more about Raina at RainaLipsitz.com. Again, the name of the book is 
the rise of a new left, how young radicals are shaping the future of American politics. Thank you so much for being on our show. This is a fascinating book, and I know that a lot of people might see that, you know, judge the book by its cover and think that this is a triumphant book about the left. It's not the triumphant book that you think it is. It's a very insightful analysis of where the left is today and where it has been recently. So thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you so much for having me, Chuck. It was, it was a real pleasure. Okay. Take care, Rena. Take care. Bye-bye. This is not the media. This is hell. And you know this is not the media because we just had a 50-plus minute conversation on the new left that is both done, fed up with, they've had it with the Democratic Party. However, this new left also recognizes the need for political power, a power that is only accessible to the two major parties, at least as our political system stands for now. And there are signs that a powerful far left that is too far for the left uh, too far to the left for the current democratic party may be emerging so if we're talking about that you know this is not the media this is hell right now you can show your appreciation for this is hell providing over 27 years of content that you cannot find anywhere else giving airtime to opinions and perspectives and analysis you won't hear anywhere else and providing new content to you absolutely free every week since 1996 commercial free content every week since 1996 absolutely free including right now you can see t- or here are 10 years of those free shows right now by going to thisishell.com. Show your appreciation for all of that by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which goes live on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell every Thursday morning at 10 a.m. Chicago time. Or you can show your support for, again, completely listener-supported This Is Hell by visiting thisishell.com and just clicking on support. Over the last three weeks on Patreon, While I was gone, we played monologues. I recorded back to back to back prior to leaving on vacation, as I was certain there was no way the internet connection where I was going would be dependable, and it was not. Because we had conversations on the show with M.E. O'Brien and Sophie Lewis about family abolition, right before I was to leave on a family vacation, I took a deep dive into the divide between our guests' Uh, and guess words and my actions only to discover that my family and very likely yours is not as traditional as the reactionary trad family crowd fantasizes after arguing that my family vacation is not your traditional family vacation or mine for that matter I followed that up with the next week reminding myself of the ugliness that's always beneath the surface of wherever you do try to get away from it all But what lies beneath can often surface in the ugliest of ways when and where you do not expect it. And then last week, I reported on everything we learned during the first seven months of this year here on This Is Hell. It's a synopsis of all the topics and every one of our guests' insights from the over 100 hours of shows we have provided for you so far in 2023 Again, 
absolutely free and without any commercial interruptions. During those past three Patreon podcasts, we also shared classic interviews you cannot find anywhere else online, but on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. Those interviews included uh, one with Wendy Wolford, co-author of the report, Now It Is Time, The Landless People's Movement and Grassroots Land Reform in Brazil, a conversation we had nearly 20 years ago to the day back in 2003. And of course, here in the States, no corporate, public, or private media outlets ever discusses the Landless People's Movement. And it's grown for the last 20 years. Then we played an interview from nearly 15 years ago to the day. This time it was a 2008 discussion with Peter Rogers, who wrote the Scientific American article, Facing the Freshwater Crisis, which is, again, continuing. And last week on Patreon, we selected the interview, uh, or sorry, Will selected the interview, Will Ippen, producer on the show, selected the interview, uh, choosing a 2012 conversation we did with environmentalist and author Bill McKibben, when Bill shared some frightening numbers about the climate crisis, made clear who the enemies of the planet really are, and again, those enemies are still profiting from destroying the planet. But the only way you can hear all of that is by becoming a This Is Hell Patreon patron on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. Thanks to our newest Patreon patrons, John B., Sam T., and Essential. And thanks to Pete B. for increasing their pledge to This Is Hell. So, thanks John, Sam, Essential, and Pete. Dan, what is this week's question from hell and how are our listeners Responding on Patreon. This week's question from hell is, I mean, what's the worst that could happen? And uh, we've got Samuel P. is just poop. (laughs) Okay. Old Grouch says, New York City goes bankrupt again. Trump wins the presidency from prison. The big island Hawaii catches fire. Government bonds become worthless, even the inflation-protected ones. I am still alive. (laughs) Wow, so that's the worst thing that can happen. All those terrible things happen, and they remain alive. Yes. (laughs) Essential said, with caramelized onions and Dijon. (laughs) Dan K., who's not me, Dan K., another Dan K., says reincarnation is the worst thing <laughs> that can happen and uh knows ref jed ref it, it's yeah. uh, jefferson backwards ah <laughs> i'll know that next time jefferson backwards says the creation of an anti-profit party challenging the media's two-party system election cycle triggers a deep state shutdown of the internet causing widespread pandemonium here in the heart of the empire, which is blamed on Russia using some type of nuclear weapon. So they legit invade China and Russia and Iran and Venezuela and Mexico and North Korea and Iran, etc. This all fails spectacularly, spectacularly, so the craziest deep state nuke themselves Dr. Strangelove style. <laughs> wow. Something like that, probably. Wow. 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 Yeah. Any more? 
Uh, that's it. That's it on Patreon. All right, that's a good way to end on Patreon. Holy cow, we'll have more of your answers to this week's question from hell on tomorrow's show. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins what they win every time. Your choice of whatever this is hell swag you want. You can check out all of our merch right now, including our newest merchandise, I believe, is now posted at thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it at us. You can post it on our Discord or at our Patreon page. Or you can email it to us at chuckatthisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we will be announcing the winner following Jeff Dorchin and his weekly Moment of Truth. Dan, what's Jeff talking about during this week's Moment of Truth? Jeff meets the Perseids. Jeff meets the Perseids. I met the Perseids over the weekend and saw them on a very clear night on Friday night, and so really enjoyed the Perseid showers this year. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, this week in rotten history on August 19th, 1953, 70 years ago this week. It's something that the United States will not be celebrating, and you will not see this commemorated on any of the major cable news networks. Iran's Prime Minister, Mohammad Mossadegh, was overthrown in a coup d'etat covertly engineered by agents of the UK and the United States. Mossadegh, who, had, who was made Prime Minister by Iran's democratically elected parliament, had upset the British by threatening their control of the output of Iran's oil fields. After the Anglo-Iranian oil company, a British firm, refused to cooperate with Mossadegh's attempt to audit the profits and make sure Iran was getting its contracted share, the Iranian parliament had voted unanimously to nationalize Iran's oil, effectively cutting the British out. The Brits, fearing that Mossadegh was backed by the Soviet communist bloc, had then teamed up with the Eisenhower administration in the U.S. to remove the prime minister and replace him with a young pro-Western monarch, Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, better known in the West simply as the Shah of Iran. And in case you uh, don't didn't know, the West did not allow Iran to be a democracy when they were one. The CIA officer Kermit Roosevelt, a grandson of former U.S. President Theodore Roosevelt, directed a joint U.S. and U.K. effort to provoke a coup by bribing politicians and military officers and by paying mobs of fake protesters to mount massive street demonstrations against Mossadegh and thereby foment, sorry, foment chaos in the streets of Tehran. Right-wing units in the Iranian military also took part, and after the failure of a first attempt, which prompted Mossadegh to make arrests and prompted the Shah to flee the country, they finally succeeded in removing Mossadegh and putting him under arrest. The Shah, who had already survived assassination attempts and was biding his time in European nightclubs, now returned to Iran and installed a new prime minister with full support from Britain and the U.S. Mossadegh went to prison for three years and then would remain under house arrest until his death in 1967. With him out of the picture, the Anglo-Iranian oil company changed its name to British Petroleum, or BP, and got a more favorable cut of Iran's oil profits. Yes, BP benefited from the overthrow of democracy in Iran. 
The Eisenhower administration viewed the coup as a success for the United States as well. But in Iran, the Shah's oppressive rule fueled a growth of anti-American resentment, which eventually would result in blowback, the hostage crisis, and Iranian revolution of 1979, which overthrew the Shah in favor of a new theocratic republic led by the Ayatollah Khomeini. Not until 2013 did the U.S. government publicly acknowledge its role in provoking the 1953 coup. And when they did make that acknowledgement, nobody cared, despite it deserving headline top story coverage in all U.S. media. But accurately reporting on how the U.S. has overthrown democracy in military coups all over the world since the end of World War II, that's not news here in the United States. That's just the way of doing business. That's Rotten History, and this is Hell. Dan, who is this week's final guest here on This Is Hell? We're going to have Elizabeth Rush, the author of The The Quickening, Creation, and Community at the Ends of the Earth. This is Elizabeth's second appearance on This Is Hell, having been on the show in the past to discuss her book, Rising Dispatches from the New American Shore which was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. And was selected by listeners as one of their favorites of the year, and we replayed it over the holiday season when we play our best of the year interviews. If you are just tuning in, earlier I mentioned the local paper where I vacation in the northern part of Michigan's Lower Peninsula, which is called the Houghton Lake Resorter. Regular listeners, but especially Patreon patrons, may be familiar with me talking about the paper because I have often cited letters to the editor in the resorter's Your Opinion section. And this may be the very best letter to the editor in the resorter's Your Opinion section that I have ever read. So, a little background. Since the mid-1980s, every year in early August, there's been a real bro-down, a seething pool of testosterone alcohol and plastic cups and flabby whiteness where boats congregate in the lake's shallow waters mostly pontoon boats barely floating above the sandy bottom beneath the shallow water it's basically drinking some drugs a lot of woohooing and dancing to classic rock music poorly broadcast over the water by a pa system at the bar slash restaurant that has always hosted the annual event that bar being the limber lost that sound interferes with the music being played on the boats, causing a cacophony of overplayed and very, very mediocre rock and roll. With that in mind, a letter by Dan Bratta of Houghton Lake was published in the August 10th edition of The Resorter under the very straightforward headline, What's Going On at Bud Bash? Dan Bratta of Houghton Lake writes, I'm a curious guy. So I decided to visit the Limberlost on Saturday night around 9 p.m. and find out what was going on. I guess that sates his curiosity. I'm a senior, over 80 years old, and a non-alcohol drinker. Uh, Just the kind of person you want to be sending to the Bud Bash, where it's mostly young people who are drinking. Dan writes, here's the news. The young people were having fun. It was a big party. There was a big crowd people standing up. The tables tables were all filled. They were all lined up at the bar. Too deep. Yes, too deep. Not just 
one person or one group of people too deep. Apparently, they don't do much business in the Houghton Lake area. Dan adds, all the TVs were on and the pool table, singular, was busy. It was a happy time for young people. I figured the age, ages were 20 to 30 years old. I never saw anyone over 50. Of course, Dan is forgetting that he could see someone over 50 by just looking in the mirror. Dan continues, there was a four-piece band playing loud music. I call it loud noise. I need a hearing aid. And it was still too loud for me. There were a few folks dancing, but not many. I enjoy people watching, or people judging. And Dan Bratta is starting to come off as a dick. You can tell a lot about people. How they're dressed, their expressions, are they smiling, friendly, how they greet each other. You learn a lot about people. Are they confident? Are they happy? And we're learning about Dan Bratta. He's a lookist. I like the atmosphere. I approved of what was going on. Not that anybody asked you, Dan. I never saw any bad behavior, over-drinking, or staggering about. I'm not worried about our young people. They're okay. And I'm starting to think they're not. Saturday night at Bud Bash at the Limberlost was a fun place. That's my report. P.S. I finally left around 11 p.m. Dan Bratta, Houghton Lake. So he was there for an entire two hours. The resorter also reported that the crowd was, again, down from previous years, as it has been since the Bud Bash's heyday 30 years ago. From my sources, the person who runs the head shop and hates Chaldeans for whatever reason, and the friendly cashier at the liquor store, the dispensaries were expecting a ton of people to show up, but confirming what the resorter reported. The crowd keeps shrinking from year to year to year, and my guess is had Dan Bratta gone to the Bud Bash, say, 30 years ago when he was in his 50s, or if he had stayed after 11 p.m., his report would have been very different and probably better. Thanks to Dan Kugler for producing today's show. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast, and live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. The Past Inside the Present with historian Sebastian Vupper returns next Monday, August 21st, but sadly not returning next Monday will be Kat Jarvin, who has been our regular Monday producer over the past several months. Kat was a great addition to the show, and she will be missed, and I cannot apologize to her enough for mispronouncing her first name on several occasions. But Mondays are always pretty hard for me. Get this, the last three times I've taken a break from the show for non-medical emergency reasons. The last three times I actually went on a vacation during that break, a member of our crew has contacted me to say they can no longer work on the show because their schedule has changed, which can really ruin your vacation. That said, we are currently interviewing candidates for the newly opened position of producer here on This Is Hell. If you are interested, email me at chuck at thisishell.com. Tell us a little bit about yourself and why you're interested in being a part of the show. You do not need to be familiar with sound engineering or production, but it does help. 
more than anything, we're looking for people who like what we do, believe in what we do as we try and do our best to get news past the bipartisan corporate gatekeepers, both private and public, who do their best to limit our political imagination. You must be available at least one morning a week, Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday, for approximately three and a half hours, beginning at 9.30 and going until about one in the afternoon. We reward our producers for their services. If you are interested or have any questions, please email us again at chuck at thisishell.com. Pretending to know what I'm talking about since 1996, this is hell. My demon is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>